Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Kim in case you haven't had the pleasure of meeting quite yet. And today I'm getting the immense privilege of doing our second installment in our series, God in the City, where we're exploring what it looks like to join God's mission in our city and how our daily lives here are an opportunity to bring life and transformation when we partner with God. So last week, Karen set the scene of God's mission in the world and the central role of the city in that bigger story. And over the coming weeks, we're going to be zooming in on what that looks like in our daily life and unpack in a little bit more detail the way that our life here in our context in London plays into God's story for this place and people that he loves. Today, I get the absolutely gigantic task of talking about our work, that thing we spend most of our time doing. I'm really excited about today because I wholeheartedly believe that if we as a community of Jesus' disciples can situate this rightly in our hearts, then the life and transformation that could flow from us into the city around us is immeasurable. So I'm going to get on with it because honestly we could have done a whole series on this topic of work and mission alone and trimming down the vast array of things I would have loved to have been able to say on this into this like 25 minutes or so slot (laughs) has been a challenge. So as a little roadmap for where we're going, I'm going to start with a little bit of context, set the scene of God's big vocational story and the innate dignity, beauty and value of work in that story. Then we're going to make sense of what we see around us, the fall of work, talk a little bit about some of the ways it's become distorted, broken and painful. And lastly, I'm going to talk about how our work is crucial to God's redemption story and hopefully challenge us together to live out our discipleship and our part in God's mission for our city and the world through our work. So before we dive into the light real meat, I want to frame what I mean by work. I'm aware that in a room of so many different people in a city as diverse and varied as ours, as soon as I say the word work, I'm probably isolating at least half of the room by accident. So I want to be clear on what I mean when I use the word work throughout this talk. A better way to understand it would be what you do to produce good in the world. When I'm talking about your work, I'm talking to the working professionals, stay-at-home parents, part-time employees, the retired, the unemployed, the students, those working multiple jobs in any given week, to the freelancers, the business owners, those in ministry, the volunteers, and everything in between and around that. I'm wrapping us all up in a higher view of work, the tasks and endeavours our hands and our minds do that produce good in this world, whatever that might be. So what I hope to convey to you is that the way God talks about and models work is bigger and more dynamic than what the world is teaching us to believe. He's engaging all of us in the room. No one is outside of God's mission in the world through work, whatever the nuances of your situation might look like right now. So to kick us off, I want to ask a couple of questions. So maybe close your eyes. I love telling everyone to close their eyes mid-preach. Gives me a moment of privacy. (laughs) (laughs) okay I'm going to ask you a couple of questions just to sort of help you situate where you're at with this right now so first off what is your work whether it's paid or unpaid what are you spending most of your week doing 
Why is it that you do what you do? What led you there? What motivates you? Number three, how do you feel about what you'll be doing this time tomorrow? Excited? Full of dread? <laughs> Amazing, you can open your eyes. So God's vocational story begins in the very first moments of created existence. I'm going to warn you now. My approach for today is more whistle-stop tour guide style than usual, so than the usual sort of like camping out in one spot and just sitting there. So um, if you're going to attempt to try and follow along in your Bibles, I'd get your index finger ready, otherwise it's going to all come up on the screen behind me. So in Genesis 1, verse 1, we get these famous words, I'm sure lots of us in the room are really familiar with. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first words on the pages of scripture describe an act of labor by the uncreated God himself. In essence, this is saying in the beginning, there was work. The ultimate project of cosmos invention by God himself took place in a variation of what we now call the regular work week. The first worker in the biblical narrative is God. In the creation story, we see God himself engaging in an act of creative work of his own divine will, the pinnacle of which is his creation of humanity. In verse uh, 27, it says God made them in his own image. In verse 28, we see God invite humanity in, commissioning human beings to participate in his work. He says to the first human beings, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There's two key words that I want to pull out here. The first is this word, subdue. It comes from the Hebrew word uh, kabash, or kabash, not really sure, one of the two, kabash. The noun form more literally means a footstool, and figuratively it means to bring into control. Here we see God inviting us to a role of responsibility to and authority over the world he created. That second word, dominion, is from the Hebrew word radar. It's commonly interpreted as to rule or reign. It's the language of royalty. It's a term that gets a little bit lost in translation, though. The word radar is more related to the idea of ruling not for our own sake, but for the sake of the one being ruled. It's perhaps a little bit better understood as taking the world forward for the good of all creation. This is the role God assigns to all human beings made in his image. It's one of royal authority in partnership with him taking what is formless and void and forming it, giving it order and beauty, taking it forward. But how are we meant to join in this task? I hear you ask. That wasn't, that was, <laughs> thanks, Steve. <laughs> in Genesis 2, verse 15, it goes on to say, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now in our second session of Kimra's School of Hebrew, this phrase, work it, is using the Hebrew word abad, and it can be translated as to cultivate, develop, or to draw out potential. The original design for our existence in this perfect ordered creation was us, God's image bearers, joining with him in paradise, drawing out its potential. That second phrase, to keep it, comes from the Hebrew word shamar, and it can be translated as to guard, to watch over, or protect. It means to steward and take care of the earth as the Lord's on his behalf. 
Humanity's role, as set out in Genesis, is a working partnership with God in his creative work. It's one of continual participation in and care for the world through work. God embeds his creation with deep, untapped potential to be cultivated and stewarded and taken forward by his royal image bearers. But this, I think, is what is really key to understand. Work is not a product of the fall. It's not something we're being punished with. It's not even a necessary evil we endure so we can facilitate leisure and rest. It's not something we put up with so we can clock off and pursue more spiritual kingdom endeavours. Work is part of God's good and perfect order. It's what he himself did and does, and it's how he has always intended for us to engage with his world and spend a significant portion of our time. In this creation account, God even sets out for us the intended rhythm of work and rest. We see God electing to rest on the seventh day to take in and enjoy his work. In Genesis 2, verse 1 to 3, when God has completed his creation, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The unlacking, uncreated God chooses a balanced rhythm of rest and work. If we skip ahead to the book of Exodus, after the fall of Adam and Eve, we've had a worldwide flood. We've met Abraham and a host of others. And in Exodus 20, we're with God's chosen people in the wilderness of Sinai, just after they've been set free from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And in Exodus 20, verse 9, we read how God gives his people 10 commandments, his guidance for human flourishing. And one of these is the rest and work rhythm. We first saw in Genesis, it says this, it says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And this law given to the Israelites set them apart from the surrounding nations. It's consistent with the work and rest rhythm God modeled in creation, and it reaffirms it as his intention for his people. In it, we see a period of labor and then time to stop work to worship, to contemplate, and to simply enjoy God, the world, and the fruit of our labor. But we often look at this commandment and we focus on the Sabbath, beautiful and sacred as it is. But note that it's six days of work and one of rest. From the very beginning and through the biblical narrative, we were intended to spend the majority of our time doing work of various forms with our hands and our minds with God for the good of the world. Now, the narrative of this dignity God has bestowed upon work continues on later in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 31, we're still at Mount Sinai, where God is instructing Moses on how the Israelites are to live. And God commissions the establishment of the tabernacle, the earthly dwelling place of the presence of God. In Exodus 31, verses 1 to 5, when God is speaking to Moses, God commissions a man called Bezalel to be in charge of building the tabernacle. It says this, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. This is such a powerful moment. 
This is the first time on the pages of scripture that the spirit of the living God fills a human being. And it's for what we would now consider ordinary, mundane or unspiritual work. It's architecture, it's manual labor, craftsmanship. It's not a prophet or a priest. It's not some looming spiritual figure. It's Bezalel, a craftsman. And this profound unfolding of God's mission in the world through ordinary people and the work of their hands and minds recurs throughout the entire biblical narrative. We meet Joseph, originally sold to Egypt in slavery, diligently working his way to the head of an Egyptian official's household, persisting on through significant trials and setbacks to an appointment as the chief advisor to Pharaoh. Joseph uses strategy and insight to help Egypt through a time of drought. We meet Ruth, a single widowed woman going about manual labor on a farm, struggling to make ends meet for, to support her mother-in-law. Her faithful dedication to her work on the farm is the setting for God's miraculous provision and redemption of her family. Ruth's line would eventually lead on to Jesus. We meet Nehemiah, the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes in Babylon, obtaining permission from the king to journey to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls. The king sends him to Judah and makes him governor of the region, where he oversees and project manages the rebuilding of its ruined structures. We meet David, brought up during the perhaps menial work of a shepherd, the least demanding job on the farm. We see him become a talented musician, performing in the palace. David goes on to become one of the most influential figures of the Old Testament, a man whose devotion and intimacy with God has moved and inspired Jewish and Christian people for thousands of years. He wasn't working in ministry. He was anointed to, by God to take up what was primarily a political office, serving the nation of Israel through his work as a leader. At the very start of the New Testament, we meet Mary, humbly accepting a profound assignment, day in and day out, feeding, clothing and nurturing Jesus, raising him as a full-time first century Jewish mother. The primary setting of the kingdom at work is not the temple. It's not amongst the priests and the prophets, as important and essential as they are. It's the ordinary environments of ordinary working people of God. The workplace is not an aside to God's mission in the world. But perhaps most profoundly of all in the gospels, we meet Jesus, God incarnate. He spent more of his 33 years here on earth in a secular job and not a high-profile job at that. The Greek is often translated to carpenter, but it's actually the word tecton, which is a broader term meaning a sort of craftsman. If Jesus were here today, it's quite likely he would be in a hard hat and a high-vis jacket on one of London's many construction sites. What profound dignity does this bestow upon work in all of its various forms that God himself would choose to do manual labour for the majority of his time here on earth? Take a moment to let that affect the way that you see your Monday to Friday. Even in the three years he spent doing his work of ministry, we only see a few recorded instances where he's doing that in a religious setting in the temple. The majority of his ministry took place in workplaces, in the tax collector's booth, on the fishing boat, in the farmer's field, or in the humble homes of ordinary working people. We have to reset in our minds this idea that work is something we just have to do a necessary evil or something we do just to provide for ourselves or our families or facilitate other more holier or more enjoyable pursuits. Work has always been an essential part of God's story. 
in Genesis at the fall when Adam and Eve reject God and choose to go about their participation in God's creation their own way, work becomes hard. In Genesis 3, it describes um, it becoming a painful toil. I know I relate to that reality. One of the most potent ways work has become broken and painful is through the way it's become self-serving, synonymous with the accumulation of wealth and achievement. It would feel out of touch to not address that our city in particular suffers from a severe case of careerism. Many of us work motivated to earn money, provide a certain lifestyle for ourselves or our families, to earn a position of status or obtain a degree of approval from society, perhaps. Our work has become tainted as the idols of money and status pull it away from its true centre. One of the best parts of scripture to get some wisdom on this fall of work is Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a rich book of wisdom literature written by King Solomon, known for his God-given wisdom. It contains incredibly profound, timeless insights into the human condition that can feel like a bit of a punch in the stomach. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about what he describes as the vanity of toil. A little context here, Ecclesiastes is likely written in what scholars call fictional autobiography. It's a writing style that would have been really common at the time. The author introduces the voice of a character they call Quaheleth, which is a Hebrew word meaning collector of sayings. It's often translated to preacher or philosopher. Quaheleth speaks about the way he has sought fulfillment under the sun. His quest is to find meaning in life based solely on what can be found within the confines of the material world apart from God. The narrator then sort of come back in at the end of the book to give some sort of final closing thoughts. Quaheleth tries learning and wisdom, tries the pursuit of pleasure, and the third thing he tries is the pursuit of achievement and the accumulation of wealth through hard work. The summary of what he finds goes something like this. We exert all this effort, doing work he describes as a vexation, to amass stuff we never really get to enjoy because we're spending so much time working. We leave the stuff we've amassed to someone else who probably squanders it. It's all, in his words, meaningless and a striving after wind. It's a well-worn cliche, but it holds a terrifying reality. What is the point of working so hard to accumulate stuff we cannot take with us? Both the money, the possessions, but also the status, the identity and the honour. Even legacy and inheritance doesn't really justify it. This is a really sad stat. In 60% of cases, inherited wealth is completely gone by the end of the second generation. We see this in Solomon's own story. In 1 Kings 14, we learn that a foreign army comes into Jerusalem and takes Solomon's treasure away from his son, Rehoboam. The refrain of Quahela's finding on work is that there is nothing to gain from all our toil under the sun. It's a myth that working for wealth or accomplishment alone can give your life meaning. We may not freely admit or even fully acknowledge that's a myth we're believing and living out. But if we were to ask ourselves really honestly, what is the story my life is telling? Would the answer look significantly different? It's not just a question for the CEOs and directors. It's a question for all of us. What's driving you? What's the source of moments of validation you experience throughout the working day? Perhaps it's flipped. What's the shame you feel about your work rooted in? What about your work makes it feel like it's not quite good enough? 
Solomon's writings on this matter are ancient, but they're timeless, and they help us understand what's broken in the way we approach our work now. When we look at the world, the city, and the culture around us, when it comes to work, we could say the same thing. It's all meaningless and a striving after wind. With the fall, work has become self-serving and unsatisfying. It's become the route by which humanity exploits the world and each other. It's become hard and meaningless. It's a garden filled with thistles and thorns. Now that you're all sufficiently depressed. <laughs> the good news is that the story doesn't stop there. That at the death and resurrection of Jesus, the inbreaking kingdom of God gives us as his followers a new hope for our work. That when we join the family of God, we rejoin his workforce. Instead of joining with the fallen world's narrative of we love this work and take the world forward thing, we just want to do it our own way. Instead, we get to work on our little patch of this place, doing the tasks in front of us and loving the people in front of us towards that image Karen was talking about last week in Revelation, the garden-like city of buildings and structures where culture and society flourishes under the full kingship of God. As followers of Jesus, we are working toward an eternal future. To follow the way of Jesus is to bring every aspect of our lives, including our work, into discipleship and into God's bigger story and his mission of redemption. In Colossians 3, Paul is talking to the believers in the church in Colossae, and I'm going to do a really diabolical thing and focus on just a fragment of the letter. <laughs> but to help us frame what I'm about to focus on, in the text leading here, Paul has been talking to the church about what it means to put on the new self that's being renewed and what he calls seeking the things that are above, in other words, seeking the kingdom of heaven. Paul gives some practical ways that works itself out in daily life, one of which is their approach to work. And in verse 23 of chapter 3, Paul says, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Paul is exhorting the church to work hard, to work wholeheartedly, no matter what form of work they find themselves doing. Paul is reminding them that the everyday working environment is as much an environment for the advance of the kingdom of God as the gathered church. We are to work for a different master and ultimately on a different project. When we put on the new self and seek the kingdom of God, our work becomes an act of service to the Lord and part of his mission in this world. We learn here that God is pleased, Jesus is honoured, even in the small, seemingly menial work of ordinary believers, done for the Lord and with the inbreaking kingdom in mind. That the miraculous is in showing faithful integrity and dedication to our work, that it's a missional activity pleasing to God. This fallen world might assign certain value to work and less to others. We as Christians even might assign more kingdom value to certain work than others. But here Paul is saying, whatever you do, do it for the Lord and for his kingdom come. We're not working primarily for a paycheck, or for other people's recognition and validation. Paula tells us here that we are working with our internal inheritance in mind, the new heaven and the new earth. The power of the Holy Spirit is in ordinary communities like us, 
carried by ordinary people like us into the daily tasks we perform and the people that we love and serve along the way. Please don't see what I'm about to say as a wishy-washy statement. If you take nothing else away from today, allow this to permeate your mind. Your work is as much a precious, powerful setting for the advance of the kingdom of God as what Viv and Steve are doing. Your vocational life too is saturated with a high call from the heavens to work looking forward to the promise of an Eden-like city under the full kingship of God. Yours too is where God wants to meet the lost, set the captives free and recreate the world. Don't live the lie that what you'll be doing this time tomorrow is any less a kingdom advancing endeavour as what we're doing right now. It will take a transformation of our minds. Minds that have been taught to ring fence our work life. When I think about this higher view of work, I instantly think about my dad. Uh, my dad has been a high school teacher for 27 years. He trained at a school just outside of Leicester, the city where my parents separately felt the Lord calling them to as young adults, where they met and married, raised myself and my two siblings, and to which they remain passionately dedicated to to this day. I've never met people who love their city like my parents do. My dad trained as a teacher at the age of 34 and has remained at the same one school to this very day, every work week for 27 years. My dad has earned a reputation as a brilliant educator, so dedicated to his school. He originally trained as a geography teacher, which if you knew him wouldn't come as a surprise because he constantly looks like he's about to go on a walk. <laughs> My dad got the opportunity though to become head of religious education at his school, not the subject he trained in. But God broke his heart for the way RE can be treated as an aside in a lot of state schools and how some of the students in his school were missing out on the opportunity to hear a true picture of Jesus and the story of Christianity. Over the course of my upbringing, I've watched my dad walk closely with a colleague who didn't know Jesus through a grave loss. I watched him open up our home to them and share the hope and light of Jesus in the midst of one of the darkest of human experiences. In a city as diverse in religion as Leicester, I've watched my dad foster friendships with leaders in different religious spaces and show his students the way of compassion and understanding in a city that can feel really divided sometimes. I could probably also never put a value on the number of seeds my dad has sown talking about Christianity from the perspective of a follower of Jesus to easily thousands of students in a dingy cold classroom over the course of his career. My dad's currently seeking the Lord on the right time to retire. He doesn't earn a massive salary, and depending on who you asked, teaching at one pretty unremarkable state high school in one of the lower profile subjects for 27 years wouldn't be the world's most swoon-worthy career record. But having watched my dad really closely for much of his career, I'm so confident that when he gets to his moment stood before God giving an account for his life, that the profound integrity and dedication he's shown to that one school, the way he's borne the image of God to the place God called him, faithfully doing the work for which he is particularly suited and operating with a higher understanding of his place in God's bigger mission and God's heart for his students and his colleagues will earn him a well done, good and faithful servant from the God of all creation. I don't know about you, 
but I really want that to be my story. I'm going to invite up the band, if that's okay. I don't know where they are, but great. Do you want to stand? When I started writing this, I thought I would have a really long list of like practical tips to help you reframe your work into God's mission. Tips on praying throughout the day or engaging with small tasks in a more mindful spiritual way or ways to approach conversations on faith with your colleagues. But as I began to, I just felt the Holy Spirit stop me and this verse came to mind in Romans. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If we are to hope to embody this higher view of our work, we need our minds to be transformed. We need to be set free from the ways our mind has conformed to the world when it comes to work. We need a revelation of the part our particular work is playing in God's story for this place. The beauty God is weaving through our everyday tasks and interactions into the bigger tapestry of his redemption of this city and the world. We spend about two-thirds of our life at work, whether that's paid work or not. We cannot afford to keep Jesus an arm's length away from it. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.